0: If you would, if you have a copy of God's word, please take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, we continue to walk through uh, the fifth gospel written many years before the other gospels. um, Also called the evangelical prophet at times. Let's look to God's word as it comes to us from the pen of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison, to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me. With the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We thank you for majestic Sunday mornings when we can see your glory and your goodness as the sun rises and shines, as your grace shines into our hearts. And we thank you as well for all the cloudy days when we also remember that your goodness is still there and still constant. God, would you be with us this morning? Would you help us to see your goodness, your never failing love for us? Would you help us see our sin and also see our savior? It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Sometimes I like to shock people and who knows whether my motives in that are good or bad, but... Once upon a time, there was a certain Jewish man who also liked the shock people. One time he was in a synagogue in his hometown. And they asked him to read Isaiah. So he read a portion of Isaiah 61. What we just read about one who had been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and all those things, but he stopped in the middle of verse two. He didn't finish it. And then he sat down and he said today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Shocking, a little bit, so much so that they chased him out of town. But was it true? Because imagine if it was true, imagine if a world of peace and justice and goodness really broke through into your world right now. Did Isaiah's audience want something like that to be true? Oh, yes. They wanted the year of the Lord's favor so bad that they could taste it. They needed redemption and release. They were staring at exile or maybe at this point in Isaiah, maybe they're already there. Maybe they had watched their friends and family be sent away or years later when they read this, they would be thinking of that. And they knew it was their disobedience as a people that had caused it in many cases. And what about years later? The people who heard this Jewish man shock them and say that this great prophecy had been fulfilled, did they need that kind of hope? Did they want to hear that? Oh, yes. They needed hope. They needed redemption and release. They needed deliverance from another foreign occupier, in this case, Rome. They needed deliverance as well from themselves. And when Jesus told them it was already here, the redemption, the release, the year of the Lord's favor that they so longed for, that it was already here, they thought it was too good to be true or that he was crazy or something. You know, in recent weeks, we've been talking about our future home, heaven, how it carries us through the hard times on earth. That's still true. But this week, Isaiah and Jesus, they they changed the emphasis just a little by telling us that all these amazing blessings are not simply future they're already here the year of the lord's favor is here it's so close you can taste it and one day you'll fully taste it five points today on what has been fulfilled and what will be the first point is this the year of redemption that has dawned the year of redemption that has dawned that's what we see in verses one through three look with me at verse one It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who is speaking here? Must be someone with a grand divine mission. Must be the Messiah. Of Isaiah, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, who's going to rule. And it's probably also the servant of Isaiah, whom you meet in the later chapters, the one who comforts, the one who will not break a bruised reed, the one who just keeps going despite opposition, the one who will be a light to the nations and who will suffer for the sins of his people. And as we know, after that suffering, by that suffering, he will rule, he will reign in our hearts and over all the earth. He will do that. He'll secure the freedom that he promises us. But it's, but it's one day, far off, in the future. Be patient, right? That's not quite what Jesus said, is it? Luke 4, 21, after reading Isaiah 61, Verses 1 and 2, at least the beginning of verse 2, he said to the synagogue, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, How did Isaiah's audience first read this passage? Well, they probably looked to it with hope for the return from exile. They may not, might not have known how long it would be till all that happened. But how should we look at this passage? We who live after Life and death, the ministry of Jesus, His resurrection as well. How should we look at this passage? We should see with gratitude all the ways that Christ has fulfilled this promise. For example, the poor. The poor in spirit as well have good news preached to us. The brokenhearted have been bound up and bandaged. Receive the comfort that comes from knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enslaved, those enslaved by their sin have been freed. And then there's the last phrase of verse 1 that talks about prison. Or you might see the footnote. It says, well, uh, it might Also be translated this way. Does it mean that the prison doors have swung open? Does it mean that blind eyes have been opened? Some think Isaiah is using a double entendre. There's freedom from the darkness of prison. Freedom from the darkness of blindness. In all of this he's saying the year of the Lord's favor has already come. And that phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, it clearly alludes to the Old Testament concept, the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus 25, 10 Jubilee was the Sabbath of Sabbaths after seven, seven year cycles. They had an extra Sabbath year and they also had a grand celebration of freedom of debts forgiven and more the 50th year. It was a bash of unbelievable proportions. It's what they were supposed to do. Yet some have said, we don't know if they ever actually celebrated The year of Jubilee. And then here comes Jesus in Luke chapter 4, some 700 years after Isaiah wrote this. And he says, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, it's already here. Its presence is announced by Christ's preaching and proclamation. It's like the blast of a ram's horn or a trumpet from which Jubilee apparently got its name. It's here already. And you know, this... It even confused John the Baptist. He sent messengers to inquire. You read about it in Luke 20 verse, excuse me, Luke 7 verse 20. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another in that hour? He that is Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight and he answered them go. And tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, when Jesus came down to earth, he brought a piece of heaven with him. Maybe it's better to say it this way. He brought a piece of the age to come into the present age, into the here and now. As we sing, one day sickness, sorrow, pain, and death will be felt and feared no more. And you see Jesus brought some of that with him. A real preview of what we will have. Does that shock us? Or does it entice you? Do you want more of those blessings now? Because his kingdom is still here and it's growing. His gospel is still here and it's growing it's spreading from shore to shore he still binds up the brokenhearted those who suffer quote any and every human breakdown from emotional prostration to conviction of sin he still comforts all who mourn over their sin and it's not only in the future it's right now jesus said 2000 years ago that this scripture had been Fulfilled. Does that mean there are no future blessings to look forward to? No. But it does mean these blessings are not merely in the future. You can taste and see that God is good right now through faith in Christ, the one who binds up the brokenhearted if you are broken over your sin and know your need of salvation. First thing we see in Isaiah 61 with an assist from Jesus in Luke 4 is that the year of redemption has already dawned. The second thing we see is this, the people of restoration who restore others, the people of restoration who restore others in verses three and four. It's a minor note, but I couldn't skip this one. I feel it's important. We need to cover it. As you see in verses one and two, it promises us good news, freedom, restoration, restored sight, comfort, as well as jubilee, all of that. And then verse three mentions more. More blessings, more of the reasons, the purpose, the goals for which the anointed one or the Messiah was sent. Why was he sent? Well, verse 3 says he was sent to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. You've got beauty, gladness, praise instead of a faint spirit or mourning or defeatism. Instead of that, they're oaks. They're firm, secure, bringing glory to God. Oaks of righteousness. As I said last week, they have a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves. Luther called it an alien righteousness. This is what God's people are like, what they will be like. And it's because of the good news that the Lord proclaims. This is the after effect. And then you read on verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This was originally aimed at a people who were mourning over exile, longing for salvation, restoration from exile. They dreamed of nothing better than going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the ancient ruins. And one day, they would. But God would keep on building even after that. He would build his church with living stones, 1 Peter 2 says, building them up into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the true fulfillment of what Israel was always supposed to be, royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, Derek Thomas says, every Christian is someone else's priest, a mediator, an ambassador. And you see, on one level, the priesthood of all believers is, is it's great news. It means that we don't need a priest. We can pray to God on our own. What a blessing that is, right? But what if you feel like your life, the ruins of Jerusalem? What if you're broken-hearted? What if you can't seem to summon the strength to pray on any given day? Isn't it great to know that someone else can pray for you? Isn't it great when someone else just drops everything they're doing and prays for you by name, sometimes in front of you, with you? Isaiah 61 says that God's people, they'll be restored, they'll be renewed by his grace, by his zeal, amen. Don't miss that none of this happens without the work of God working in us, don't miss that. But in verse four, what does it say? It says, God's people are also agents of his restoration. In the immediate context, it's talking about rebuilding the ruins of ancient cities, likely Jerusalem once again, but isn't it also a picture of the house of God that is the church, of ransomed sinners, restored, renewed, and then proclaiming that same good news to others who were then restored themselves, the objects of God's restoration, becoming the agents of his restoration as well. And is that still happening today? Is that still happening here in, in this church? And it is. In, Plenty of ways. Sins conquered. Sins forgiven. Marriage is healing. New faith and obedience. Greater service. Children embracing the faith of their parents. I could say more, but I won't for various reasons. But it's happening. And we should praise God for that. Is it shocking? I hope not. It shouldn't be. Not if you've experienced God's restoration, which often involves another divine restoration project ministering to you the people of restoration become agents of further restoration that's what you see we also see this thirdly the reaping of abundance that brings joy the reaping of abundance that brings joy in verses five through seven we're going to deal with the confusing part then we'll get to the joyous part verses five and six Talks about foreigners serving Israel. Israel eating the wealth of the nations, that phrase popping up again this week. You might be wondering, aren't God's future people? Aren't they from every tribe, tongue and nation? So what's going on here? Derek Kidner in his trademark brevity says the reality pictured is the people of God whose status is not national vindicated and enjoying their full inheritance as kings and priests while the pride of man is humbled and his power harnessed. In other words, God's people, they will reap amazing blessings and the prideful, the powerful who never repent nor turn to Christ, they're going to be humbled in the end. And we know that's true from elsewhere in scripture, that God's people will reap amazing blessings. Galatians 6, 9, we will reap If we do not give up, I just can't resist mentioning that. But Mr. T posted that verse on Twitter last Sunday. Yes, all of you children of the 80s, Mr. T is a Christian. Somebody also told me that he's an ordained minister. Galatians 6, 9, we will reap if we do not give up. We will reap. We will inherit a great harvest of blessing. Now that may mean more to an agricultural society. Let me attempt to update it in modern economic terms. One day, God's people will hit the jackpot. And in fact, we already have. And it's only going to get better. Verses six and seven say, you shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory, you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lots. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And again, you already have. We who live many years after Isaiah wrote this, we already have everlasting joy if we've been found in Christ. We have a happiness that's deeper than happiness. A happiness that's not dependent on circumstances because one day our circumstances will be celestial. You already have joy. You've already reaped a reward you didn't deserve. And that joy, it's so close you can taste it you've reaped, you've reaped in abundance. And when we count those abundant blessings, it reminds us the joy that we have. And those aren't the only blessings we have. And that leads to our fourth point, the double recompense that warns and comforts, the double recompense that warns and comforts in verses 7 through 9. There's likely a shift in speakers here in verses 7 and 8. It goes from the Lord's servant to the Lord himself, but the theme is similar. Verse 7 mentions, there's double mentions, of the double portion that God's people receive. And then the rest of this section seems to have a a double mention, a double nuance here of the idea of recompense or repayment. What do I mean? Well, verse 8 mentions that god will repay he will repay you might say in two different ways he'll repay those who have done wrong those who have been unjust but at the same time verses 7 through 9 are dripping with the idea that god will repay us his people by the way does that mean that god owes us not really but jesus did once say this luke 18 verse 29 truly i say to you There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, it's not so much that God owes us. It's more like God has promised us blessings and he fully intends to pay them, to fulfill them because he's faithful. He's just. Loves justice, verse 8 says. And out of that justice flows, on the one hand, hatred for injustice. Is that idea shocking? It shouldn't be. Is it controversial? Maybe, but it shouldn't be. Because almost everyone today has an an acute sense of justice. They feel strongly about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's attuned or calibrated properly. What I mean is this. It is not hard to find someone who's really angry, about something. (laughs) It's not hard to find that. It's not hard to find someone who thinks that wrongs done deserve punishment. But the world, the way the world, the way they define wrong, it's all over the map, right? And all of us could list, if we had enough time, the people we know or have read or have watched on TV who are way too outraged about something that we don't even think is wrong. My main point is that the world, regardless of who they are, the world believes more and more that wrong actions deserve punishment. And so does God. In fact, he would be unloving if he never punished anyone. If God let evil exist and flourish forever, then that would be less loving to his people whom he has promised to protect and give these amazing blessings to one day. The Bible shows us God will wipe out evil slowly and progressively through the conversion of sinners into saints. And one day he'll wipe it out swiftly, finally. That is, yes, a minor note here, but it'll show up again in Isaiah. And we should all be warned by this. All of us should be encouraged to seek the comfort, the refuge that we have in Christ. Because no one can meet our own standards, let alone God's. As we said earlier, Jesus in Luke 4, he stopped reading halfway through verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He read the part that said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He didn't read the part that said to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Why didn't he read that? People have said it's because his first coming was primarily to announce the Lord's favor in his good news, the salvation that is found in Christ. And his second coming will be to announce God's vengeance, which, yes, is still good news for his people. But God will wipe out evil. He'll do it because he's just. That is one side of the recompense, the repayment. And the other side, Zalek Alec Moitier says, his salvation is as just as as his vengeance. He promised justice, he promised salvation, he promised peace for his people, which means he's gonna wipe out evil, but also he will overwhelm us with his grace. He'll overwhelm us with double portions, with the everlasting covenant, so that all of his promises are doubly secure, overwhelming us with recognition, with status, and more. Verse nine says, "'Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring. The Lord has blessed God's recompense, which arises from his justice. It's a warning. It's also a comfort because he promises to repay everything he's ever promised us, some of which we've already received. And on that note, in our last point, we're going to see someone testify to what he has already received. Fifthly and finally, we see the robe of righteousness that covers our shame. The robe of righteousness that covers our shame. See this primarily in the final two verses, as well as some other places. But we have a new speaker in verses 10 and 11. It's someone who has been clothed and covered with salvation and righteousness. Who might that be? Makes you wonder if he used to be someone who mourned or had a faint spirit, as it says in verse three, if he ever felt shame in dishonor. Verse seven, if he was so overwhelmed with his sin that he cried out, woe is me. I am undone. I'm lost. I'm a I'm a dead man because I'm unclean. My lips are unclean, so are my people, and my eyes have seen the King, the true King of kings, the Holy One of Israel. You see, Isaiah definitely wrote these words, but I think they are also his personal testimony of God's grace to a sinner like him. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Isaiah speaks first of this robe of righteousness, the salvation that covers him. And then he speaks of this righteousness that sprouts up before all the nations. That second image, is it talking about the way that Christ's imputed righteousness is also accompanied by a real growing righteousness within us? Is it talking about the sanctification that follows justification? Or is this second image, is it talking about the way that the gospel message it's sown, it's scattered like seeds, and how by God's grace, some of those seeds sprout up. They bear their own seeds so that the gospel spreads, and so that God, who can alone give the increase, he gets the glory in the end. Which one is it talking about? I don't know, but both are true. Both are mentioned elsewhere in scripture, and both are reasons to praise God and his faithfulness, but Let's not skip over the robe so quickly, this robe of righteousness, because we may forget how much we need this robe, because sometimes we hear the great promises of Scripture, like this morning. Even we hear about good news to the poor, God healing the broken hearted, and we're tempted to say, "But I'm still poor financially or otherwise. God promises to make me a new creation, but I don't feel very new this morning. And then we might say, well, I mean, you know, it's not God's fault he's good and all that stuff that we talk about. So what's the problem? The problem must be me. I must be the problem. And what do you do with that from there? Well, maybe we try harder and maybe we give up and maybe we bounce back and forth between the two. And what we need to see once again, Is that the blessings god promises us here they're not simply future they're here already they're here they can be had even now i've referred to this in some related passages before by saying things like this the bride will wear white whether she deserves it or not the bride will wear white because god her faithful husband will clothe her he has clothed her as it talks about in Revelation 19, and man, that may be a weird image for all of us this morning. But I, I encourage you: we need to wrap our heads around it, because in a sense, this is what Isaiah is telling us. He's telling us that this has already happened, that it will never be taken away, and it should make you rejoice like crazy. He's saying that you can live like the prodigal son or prodigal daughter. You can squander your property in reckless and wild living, you can blow it through rebellion or blow it by laziness or pride or presumption or legalism or pharisaism or one of the thousand ways that you can make yourself unworthy of God's love. But when you come to the Father with your I'm sorry speech, he is not going to say, "Give me my money back and get your act together." He's going to say, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring shoes and a ring. Bring the fattened calf because tonight we are having filet mignon and tomahawk ribeyes. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Martin Luther famously said that Christians are simultaneously sinful and justified. We are. Not fully new, but we are genuinely new on this side of heaven. In the part that still needs to be renewed, it's still covered by a robe of righteousness, a garment that saves. You don't need to get your act together to be invited to the feast because the God who covers our sin and our shame, he will be cleaning up our messiness until we reach heaven. The prodigal son If he was real, he probably had sins to repent of the day after the feast as well. But he still had the best robe and he still had the father's love. He already had it and that part never changed. Was it shocking? Probably. And it was also true and not true one day, but true at that very moment. The age to come, all of its glories and its goodness, it had broken into the present age like it does whenever Christ's sheep hear his voice and follow him. The year of the Lord's favor has already come. Good news and healing and comfort and the close of salvation are already here for all who mourn over sin, for all who seek Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need your goodness. We need your glory. We need your robe of righteousness to cover over our sin and our shame. We need your healing, your renewal. And what good news it is to know that we already have them, that they're already here for those who have trusted in Christ and for those who haven't yet. It's still right here. Today is the day of salvation for those who put their faith and hope and trust in Christ Jesus. Father, if we already have, let your grace draw us near. Help us to walk in new faith and new obedience. And if we have not, let us do that now. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.